Gospel of John. Why don't you grab a seat, open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, and we'll ask the Lord for his help, because guess what? We're going to need it, especially me. Heavenly Father, now as we get our hearts settled now by your wonderful uh, Holy Spirit who's here among us, Lord, in this fantastic new book for a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of John, Lord, the opening words are just so breathtaking and so reassuring and uh, so wonderful. We pray, God, that the work of the Word of God would penetrate into our hearts and do the work for which it was sent to transform us, to heal us, to make us whole, God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. So in a typical court case where the truth needs to be established, it's customary and a very good idea uh, to call several key witnesses, not just one, Right, Because with multiple witnesses um, who tell what they've seen or what they've heard or what they know, each one kind of brings a slightly different perspective. And uh, that better confirms the truth and it provides a fuller, more complete picture uh, than if we only had one person's take on the matter. And that's what's going on with the four Gospels that tell us about the life and ministry uh, of Jesus, our Savior, his coming into the world, his teachings, his miracles, his death, resurrection, and his ascension. Uh, Four takes. Matthew, he highlights Jesus as a fulfillment of Jewish prophecy and 60 times he points to the Old Testament uh, and the prophecy that's being fulfilled right there in the chapter. Mark, he speaks of Christ coming as a servant uh, to bear our burdens and die for our sins. And Luke, he emphasized Jesus' compassion, the healing miracles, and emphasizes his manhood. And as a counterbalance to his manhood, we have the Gospel of John. That's going to take a totally different vantage point altogether and emphasize the deity, the divine nature of our Lord Jesus. And so it's exciting to begin a a new book. And uh, here as uh, the Apostle John, one of the 12 and one of the inner circle, one of the three, he tells the story to make one point very clear. And here's John's emphasis. Jesus is none other than God himself. And he lets us know that in sentence number one. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Sentence number one, Jesus is God. Verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. A shout out to the Trinity there. We're going to talk about that. Verse 3, through him all things were made, without him... Nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. We'll pause there. There's a lot to say. In fact, books upon books and volumes upon volumes have been written just to exposit these five verses. And so it's fitting that we spend more than five or ten minutes there. The crux of the message is right here. But Lord willing, it is my hope that we make it down to verse 13. And once we're through with these five verses, things move a lot quicker. And so uh, just amazing (laughs) challenge to talk about infinite things with finite brains and minds, and so we are needing the Lord's help for sure. So we begin our verse-by-verse study through this amazing book with a mind-blowing sentence here and a profound paragraph, isn't it? It's John's thesis statement, that first verse for the 21-chapter biography of Christ. Uh, So it may be a little bit of time uh, since you've been in an English class, but as a former English teacher, I can remind us again uh, what thesis statement is all about. So when you're writing your research paper, and I hope not to bring too much PTSD uh, to you when I say research paper, or essay. The thesis, of course, is that short summary statement, usually one sentence that summarizes for your readers your main point or your claim. And everything that comes after that thesis sentence is an effort to prove the claim by means of example or evidence. And so sentence number one, Jesus is God. The rest of the 21 chapters is to provide evidence that he is indeed God and that if you believe in him, you will never die. You will have everlasting life. And so, yeah, uh, true, John's ancient readers, first time through, won't know who the word is. In the Greek, it's logos, right? Uh, But by verse 17, he lets the secret out of the bag that it's Jesus of Nazareth that he's talking about. And so, yeah, soon enough, uh, everybody will know only after he's done identifying this word or logos as the creator of the universe, the source of life and the sustaining force behind all human existence. (laughs) That's a a mouthful right there. And so in verse 14, he's going to say the, the big ticket item, the wow moment, is that the creator of the universe wraps himself up in flesh and blood and enters the world that he created through a virgin womb on a mission to save you and me and whoever will call on his name. And we can know the author of life on a first name basis, Jesus, full of grace and truth, coming from God the Father, God the Son. And so, yeah, uh, we do need to take some time here. And uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So John wants to start with Jesus' origin. Embrace yourself, John says, of his origin, he has none. He is timeless, he is eternal, he always was, he always is, 
and he always will be. He has no origin because Jesus is the origin, you see. As the Lord clearly proclaimed when he said, I am the Alpha and Omega. By the way, Alpha and Omega, Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega is the last. So it's as if he would say, I am the A and I'm the Z. I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So he says, John is saying right here from the start, in the beginning was the beginning, and his name is Jesus. So back up your mind as far as you can go into eternity past, and when you get there, Jesus will have been waiting for you for millions of years because he's not only there, but he's even further back than that. He is the beginning that always was. Now, I don't know if you remember, you'd have to be probably more than 50 years old, the old Lost in Space television series. They had a robot. He was lovable. But when he got stressed out, when he got too much sensory overload, his arms would go out and it starts spinning in circles and say, does not compute, does not compute, does not compute. And I really thought about that studying. What I just said to you is so surreal, talking about eternal truths with, with minds that can only go so far, does not compute, does not compute. We're going to have a few of those moments, uh, as you might suspect, talking about the almighty God. And so here he starts out by saying, look, uh, Jesus is eternal. Jesus of Nazareth uh, has no beginning and no end because he is the beginning and he is the end. And Jesus didn't keep his eternal nature secret, did he? John chapter 8, uh, when dealing with this hot-headed Jewish religious leader opponents who were jealous of him and always uh, dogging him, uh, in this John chapter 8, there's a heated discussion and Abraham's name came up. And Abraham to the Jews were like, is like a father figure. He is the progenitor of the race. Uh, and he is revered, you know. But he lived 2,000 years uh, before them, right? And so they bring up Abraham and they say, who do you think you are with your big claims? Do you think you're greater than our dear, beloved Abraham? And Jesus said this. You keep bringing up Abraham and how much you revere Abraham, while at the same time you're rejecting me, which is odd because when Abraham and I met, he was super excited to see me. <laughs> he wasn't rejecting me. He wasn't treating me the way you're treating me. No, in fact, we had a big old bear hug and all of this. This is implied, of course. But And, and here's what they say in John chapter 8. You're not even 50, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus responds, well, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born 2,000 years ago, I am. I always was. I was then. I am now. And I'm always going to be. Because, and there's only one conclusion, because I'm God. That's an amazing thing. And that's why they pick up stones to kill him, because of the blasphemous thing. You, quoting them, you a mere man, make yourself to be God. 
So in keeping then with John's purpose to reveal Jesus' deity, uh, while Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they go back to the manger and Bethlehem and the angels and the wise men and Joseph and Mary to the beginning of the gospel ministry. John doesn't do that. John doesn't go back to Bethlehem because he's talking about Jesus as God. So he goes back to the beginning, you see, the beginning of time. He existed uh, uh, in eternity past. This man from Nazareth is actually the beginning. In the beginning, he was there with God. And by the way, he was God. Now, uh, only he wasn't known back then as Jesus. He went by another title called the Logos, uh, which is what the Greek word there uh, for word is. So let's talk about the Logos because it's super important to the Jewish mind at the time and to the Greek mindset of the Roman Empire who used the word a lot. And so for the Jews, they had a biblical understanding of what the word, the Logos, was. They, they knew it was the speech of God. It was the divine energy that was unleashed when God opened his mouth to say something. And in that speech, there was power and life. And so we can see that in Psalm 33 and verse 6. It says, in Jewish thinking, in the Psalms, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So the word is God's agency by which he accomplishes his work. Uh, There are examples in the Old Testament. He sent his word to the prophets to predict the future. He sent his word to deliver his people on the battlefield. He sent his word and healed their diseases, Psalm 107. And God himself put it this way in Isaiah 55. He says, so is the word that goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which it's sent. It's in the beginning was the word. Now, the Greek mind uh, that lacked biblical insight, right, for pagan people, and it's true today. Logos was that universal consciousness, the divine reason, the kind of cosmic energy uh, that creates and guides uh, life. And in sort of, it's sort of what Star Wars calls the Force. When, when it says, may the Force be with you, it's that impersonal, divine-like kind of um, force uh, that has power to create, and, uh, but it doesn't have a face and it doesn't have a name which fallen sinners prefer. That's what we want. The more vagueness about God, the better, because we all know as human beings, spiritual beings with a, with a conscience, that there, there's something out there and, uh, you know, that creates and sustains life. Uh, but if it has a name and a face and a will then obviously we would have to surrender and be obligated, in fact, to worship and to adore the force that gives us life 
and who's created everything. So by keeping it vague, like it, I, I know it's out there, but let's just call it like New Age people and Oprah Winfrey, the universe, the universe. It was because the universe let us meet. Or if you're NAA, you know, you could call it the, your higher power, but we all know there's lots of higher powers out there, but John says, no, there isn't. That which you're calling the universe and the, the force that enables life has a name and a face and a will for everything he has created. He has a purpose and his name is Jesus. He's not unknowable. It's not an impersonal it. It's a he, and he was with God in the beginning, and he was and is God himself. So, yeah, um, we're not even out of verse 1, and we're going to learn something else here that's very crucial about God that God wants us to know, even though it's hard to understand. He put it there to show us that when you think of God, there's a plurality, all right? There's something called... A trinity, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, there's three who are one. There are not three gods. There's one God, and he is composed of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, it's not an addition problem of if you did one plus one plus one, you would get what? Three. No. There are not three gods. It's one times one times one equals one. You've got three ones, but when you times them together, you really, at the end of the day, have one thing. And you'll notice that right away, God wants us to know that Jesus is God, but he was also with God. So what does that mean? Well, it means Jesus is not the Father, and the Father is not Jesus, but they share such an entwined relationship that it's hard to distinguish them one from another. For example, in John chapter 10, uh, Jesus will say, look, I and the Father are one. And the Jews understood what that meant, that he was claiming to be God, and that's what they said, right? And then again, John 14, uh, Jesus is answering Philip's request because they're all panicked, and the Lord just brought up at the Last Supper the Father God, and Philip said, oh, it would be so nice to have a vision of God the Father, and then Jesus says, how long have I been with you that you don't recognize me? Anybody who's seen me has seen the Father. Well, that's because what Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In other words, that verse means that if you stamped the invisible God's image into a mold of flesh, you would have Jesus. He's the exact representation of God's being. And that's why Jesus could look at Philip and say, you want to see the Father? 
Hi. <laughs> Which makes us, once again, flail our arms out and just go, how is that possible? Well, there's some a couple ways I'm going to give you to think about the Trinity uh, that will be helpful to you. The first most helpful <laughs> of all is the way God introduces himself in the beginning. The first words in the Bible says this, hello everybody, I'm the Trinity. That's exactly what's going on in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, the word in English is God. The word in Hebrew is God's with an S. In the beginning, the God's family, the one, the one thing, God, created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the third person of the Trinity was there too. Imagine that. Hovering over the waters, and God the Father spoke, and out of his mouth came the utterance of God, which is the word, which is who? Jesus. So right from the jump, you've got this God creating, and a shout out to God the Father who's initiating, God the Son who's being uh, spoken, the word in power, and God the Spirit facilitating and accomplishing what God the Father and God the Son want, the three in one. Now, I think the second best way to understand this is when, he, when, when, he scroll, when you scroll down a little bit further to verse 26. In case you don't speak Hebrew, understand what's going on there. Well, you know, I, what, what I can tell you is, is that it's called, a, in, in English, it's called a collective noun that uses singular verbs. For example, the family. The family can consist of mom, dad, and junior, but when you say the family's going somewhere, it's the family is going because it's one thing. The committee can have three guys on it, but the committee is, not the committee are. You see? So within the collective noun of Elohim, of God, there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it is a singular unit that requires singular verbs. Uh, let, so when you get down to verse 26 where it was headed, the three-in-one says, in keeping with this whole theme, let us make man in our image. Okay, come on. Who, that is just screaming that, that there's this Godhead with three persons involved. And so, yeah. So, something about us that reflect his image, the three-in-one, the triune being, is making a being that is also triune like him. And that is how we reflect his image. And this is the best way to understand the three-in-one, because you are three, but one.
aren't you? Let me show you this in 1 Thessalonians. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May you be whole spirit, one, soul, two, and body, three. We're three, but we're one. The soul's not the spirit, and the spirit's not the soul. Sometimes they are used like that. But Hebrews chapter 4 says right now the word of God is going into hearts, penetrating into your heart where, quote, spirit and soul divide. So right there we know the spirit is not the soul, and the soul is not the spirit, and the spirit is not the body. There's three things so (laughs) entwined Together, if you try to separate them, you're dead. That's why when Jesus almost laughed when, when the Jews were saying, we got God as our father, and Jesus like, oh, it doesn't work that way because you'd have to have the son too because God comes as a package, father, son, and Holy Spirit. And when Jesus sends Christians out in the name Singular. He says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, yeah, I I know I'm three. I never really think of myself as three. I mean, unless there's a mental illness going on, uh, we don't normally say, well, my spirit likes this, but my soul, you know. Uh, you, you know, we just think of ourselves as the collective one. But we are made in the image of a three-in-one. And we reflect that image in our triune-ness. So that's a couple ways to think about it that way. So, yeah, so John continues. (laughs) He's not just good at inanimate objects. You you know, he's really good at creating is what he's saying. Uh, Verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So think about that. So Jesus of Nazareth there, standing there, to think that he is the almighty God who created everything that exists. What a dreadful shock is awaiting people who just relegated him uh, down to uh, some sort of religious holy man, an inspired rabbi, a peaceful, misguided revolutionary. Oh, (laughs) there's more to Jesus of Nazareth than meets the eye. Through him, all things were made. Oh, oh my goodness, that's, that's really surreal and shocking for sure. But it does explain things, you know. One time in Mark chapter 4, they're out on the Sea of Galilee and a hurricane comes through and threatens to capsize the boat and they think they're going to drown and Jesus is on board. They get a hold of him and they're saying, Lord, save us. And Jesus, quote, gets up, rebukes the wind and says to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind dies down and it's completely calm. They're terrified and here's what they ask each other. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, yeah, because they were created by him. You see? So he gives an order to the wind and the wind says, yes, sir. This is Jesus of Nazareth and the world just thinks he's some rogue prophet, but mm, surprise, the family secret is this. 
that the Holy Spirit incarnated himself. The Holy Spirit is God into the womb of a virgin. And that human being, baby, was born 100% human and 100% God. And the things he said and did just kind of uh, give him away. So yeah, and that would <laughs> that would explain why he could walk on the water because he made the water and uh, how he can speak to a leper who has no flesh there, no flesh, and then there's flesh. Or how remember that the story I love when Peter slices off uh, off an ear of the soldier and Jesus puts his hand there and says, well, I made the constellations and ear is really nothing, you know? So because he did, he, he made the constellations. So, so we can open up our minds a little bit when he does what he does. For me, this says to me, listen up about your problems. I am the Lord. Is anything too difficult for me? Think about, you've got an impossible thing. I do. I mean, you've got an impossible thing. You're thinking, this is impossible. No, it is not. Because Jesus is in your life. And Jesus created everything and gives life to everything. And nothing is impossible uh, for him. He created all things, and that's what we taught our kids. I got a, it led to a funny story, our kids knowing that everything they saw was because of Jesus. And we were flying on a jet uh, home from Japan, back and forth. We lived there four years, and we had our, one of them was six at the time, and we were looking out the window with a few people, and it was really quiet. The sun was coming up. Everybody was super exhausted. And so there was just this awe because uh, the colors outside, the, the rays reflecting off the clouds and the water, the colors, it was amazing. And everybody's uh, looking out and it's dead quiet. And Jordan looks out the window and says, good job, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and, and everybody's like, Oh, yeah. But the rest of the world is, isn't the universe amazing? You know, sorry, I do voices. But um, that just, just, he's got a name. And she was absolutely right in saying that because he did do that, you see. So uh, verse 4, he's not just good at making inanimate objects. Verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. So once again, something you might expect of the one who made the constellations and also knit us together in our mother's womb. When John says the light of men, that's who he is. He means that impulse, that spark, that that animates every human being, not in a saving way here, but whether you're born in an African tribe or in a ghetto or in a royal palace, or whether you were a human that lived before the flood or in the time of uh, the building of the pyramids, or if you're a baby over at labor and delivery over across the way at Sutter, 
and was born last night. Every soul has been given a human consciousness, the light of life. It means the ability to enjoy the simple pleasure of being alive as an eternal spiritual soul. That comes from Jesus, and that gift, the ability, uh, is thanks to him. He, he, makes, he gives people beingness who can love and laugh and cry and sing and dance and think and imagine and ponder and create and problem solve and build and dream and explore. Ecclesiastes puts it this way, the light of life, really. He put eternity in our hearts. He created us. And when it says he put eternity in our hearts, the light of life, we understand as spiritual beings that we come from spirit and that there's a God and there's more to life than what we can see and experience in the here and now. That's what Solomon meant there in Ecclesiastes when he said he's put eternity in. And that's kind of what John is saying, that in him was life and the and because of Jesus and who Jesus is, it's the light of mankind. It's, it's how we all exist. It's at his favor. No matter how wicked and ungrateful, we have Jesus to thank for that. And so Jesus will come in John chapter 10 and say, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly more, what that really means is I've already given you the gift of being a human being. And it comes with a lot of perks. But I've come that you would have abundant life, more abundant life, in that you leave this dark, fallen, limited world that's been kind of wrecked as, as privileged as we are to be human beings made in the image of God, uh, sin has wrecked the place. So he says, come to me and I'll give you rest and I will, I will show you life as it's more than mere existence even then. So verse five, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it nor overcome it. That can mean both things and both things work. So now uh, John is saying there's a problem that needs fixing and that's going to help him introduce why this word who was with who was with God who is God had to come into our world uh, and wrap himself up in flesh and blood he has a mission and the problem is to bring light truth and rescue in a world that's gone dark He had in the beginning said, let there be light. He looked around. The verse in Genesis says he separated the light from the darkness. And it says it was good. But then in chapter 3, Adam and Eve, prompted by the evil one, unplugged themselves from the light of life. From the life giver. And if you unplug from the life giver, what do you got? Well, spiritually speaking, you got spiritual death. And that's from the time of Genesis 3. Darkness has reigned, spiritually speaking, over the planet because we're estranged from the source of life. So he's going to say that the source of life loves us and wants to rescue whosoever will 
believe in his name. And so he's going to come into the train wreck, the darkness, the desolation, the emptiness, the brought on by sin, and shine so that people can see the light, come to him, and be rescued, you see. So continuing on, verses 6 through 9, that goes pretty fast now. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light. We know him as John the Baptist. So that through him, Christ, all men might believe. He himself was not the light. John wasn't the Messiah. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light, as opposed to all the fakers. That's why it says the true light there. Because in every generation, there's, there's a wannabe counterfeit messiahs that say, come into the light. He says, no, no, no. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world, and he's going to introduce him now. So... John has told us up to now that Jesus has been around forever because he's God and that he's the creator and sustainer of everything and everybody. And he comes to light up the darkness. And so, yeah, John doesn't need to tell us about the birth narrative, as I already explained. Uh, Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem, no room at the end, the shepherds, the wise men. Uh, why? Because, first of all, he's talking about Jesus as God. Second of all, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have been written, and they are circulating for years. By the time John writes, John's the last gospel to be written. And so the information's there. So John's going to pick up right now at the start of his public ministry when Jesus is 30 years old and he goes out to the Judean wilderness where his forerunner, who was prophesied, John the Baptist, 700 years earlier, that in Elijah-like style that this John would appear and be the forerunner to prepare people with a fiery sermons convicting people of their sin and need of a savior. And, and that's where John now is picking up here. Uh, Disciple John tells us that the baptizer, let's call John the Baptist the baptizer because John is writing and John is also the baptizer. And I just met four new people in this church today and guess what their names are? John. All of them. So just whenever you see a face, just call him John and you're pretty much going to be right. So John, the disciple who's writing, is telling us that the baptizer was called by God as a witness as, as a, <laughs> to the one who comes in the darkness, and that light is really like a searchlight looking, seeking and saving the lost. And so, yeah, he needs to clear up some confusion. And he goes, listen, John the Baptist, I know you guys love him, and they did. John the Baptist was well-received. And he had a powerful, miraculous ministry. And his birth was miraculous. His mother couldn't have kids in life, and then she was too old to have kids. And then his father, who was a Levitical priest, was doing his thing in the temple, and an angel came and said, hey, you're going to have a son. And he's prophesied about 700 years ago, he's going to be mighty. He's going to introduce Messiah. So there's this, the miracles, the angel, the pregnancy, and then this powerful preaching, and he says that that's where it stops. He's a pointer. 
is like us. That's why Jesus said, among men born of women, no one's greater than John the Baptist. He's number one. But the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What did he mean by that? Well, John was the last in the line of the prophets who said, there he is, and he was there. John's the greatest person who ever lived because he had the greatest honor. That's him, the word of God, who comes to take away the sins of the world. But Jesus says, you know what's even more of an honor? To have Christ by his spirit living in your heart. And now you pointing to Christ, to people to come to know him. And so that's pretty amazing stuff. And so, yeah, this is what had to be separated out there. Let's stop that dumb rumor and make sure nobody gets confused. And then let's finish up with the last few verses for this morning. He was in the world, verse 10, and here's the greatest paradox and irony of all. Though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him, yet to all who received him. So some good news here. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not the natural way, because oh, husband and wife want to have kids. No, 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 no. But born of God, become fathered of God himself to be heirs of eternal life and have God as their legit heavenly father. That's pretty amazing. And before I forget, I just want you to know that mankind does better after the fall than before the fall through the redemption of Christ. Because Adam and Eve were not the fathered children of God. They were not. They were great in this, that they were created by God, by God's spirit, God's breath, God's fathering. Was it in their heart? They are not technically the children born of God's spirit. There's something else going on here that God is going to bless us uh, in greater ways than what we had before paradise. Well, now in Christ we've been elevated even, and that's a Romans 8.28, how God can use all things for the good. So he lays on us the greatest irony the world can ever know, and he's got some good news and bad news, and he gives us the bad news first which is actually the correct order when you do have good news and bad news. Always get the bad news out of the way, right? So he says, uh, think about this. The creator of the world steps into the world he made and is unrecognized and worse, rejected. So that's real darkness. So like a horror movie, uh, when the created thing is created on the table, and life goes into it, it's alive. It reaches its arms up, not to embrace its maker, but to strangle it, to strangle its maker. 
that is sort of the Frankensteinian way uh, that goes down in the gospel. That's the irony. It's like, wait a second, I give you life. I created you. You wouldn't be here without me, and you want to spit in my face? It just doesn't make sense. And so when it says the world didn't recognize him, it's not speaking of, whoops, oh, underneath that carpenter's son is the glory of God, maybe a little bit, but actually it means something different because actually they did recognize him as Jesus' parables taught. Jesus told the story at the end there when things were heating up and he said it's kind of like these crazy tenants that that are are working a vineyard and they're not paying the owner what the owner's asked for and then the owner sends his son and they look out and say oh he's the son let's kill him and throw him out of here so that we don't have to deal with the owner ever so they know they recognize. So it's not this innocent, you were in Trader Joe's and somebody from high school days walked by you, walked right by you, but it had been 15 years and you say, oh, I didn't recognize them. Nope. It's that you did rec. this is the meaning, they recognized the person and for whatever reason went the other way and didn't give them the recognition. That's the same word. That's what it means. And more than that, they were not willing, they were out of sorts with the idea that uh, that whole thing was rubbing them the wrong way. They're inhospitable, closed, unfriendly, unwelcoming to reject. Now that wasn't a, a surprise to the Lord. In Isaiah 53, we have this verse, he, the word, the logos, Christ, God, Jesus, was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, see? So they understand, they hear he was despised and rejected. We uh, held him in low esteem. So yeah, they recognize the claims, of course. They recognize the prophecies. They recognize the voice. But they didn't want anything to do. To, To come to your own, Uh, One writer said it really has the meaning of coming home, right? So he came home only to find the locks have been changed and the shades are drawn and the lights are out and there's a big sign that says no trespassing and you know who you are. You see, that's kind of the idea which doesn't make any sense, but it tells you how crazy you will become and how blind if you embrace your sin. So, uh, he came to his own, uh, the Jews. Uh, he prepared them, he formed them from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he grew them from 70 that went down to Egypt to 2 million, and then he led them to the promised land so that the Messiah could come through them. Uh, he gave them 300 prophecies to prepare them, and then he comes home and he says, here I am, and they say, no, thank you and worse, uh, and, and acting on behalf of all sinners, they, re, they have a violent, um, murderous 
reaction to him standing there. But the story doesn't end with tragedy. It ends with some good news. But anybody, to all who received him, to them, he gave the right, those who believed on his name, the right to become born of the spirit of God himself. Yeah, so the right meaning this, that there's God gives those who believe the authority and the privilege to have their hearts filled with God's seed and inside to come to life as his child and become an heir of heaven. So the New Testament will call you and me who believe on Jesus an heir, a co-heir with Christ. That means that everything Christ stands to inherit belongs to us as well. So this is why he says, check this out. God has actually given you authority, given you the right, given you the honor and privilege to become his own child, fathered by his own spirit. This is is a glorious truth that is life-changing in how you think about your Lord and Savior, and how you go about in your life to glorify him, knowing that he has made you his own and given you promises like these to be called his dearly loved children. It raises us up, makes us new, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God, eternal life, and calls us out of darkness. And why and how? simply by trusting in him. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your great love and this amazing invitation to everybody and anybody to believe in the name of Jesus and his life. We thank you, Lord, for what we're learning and have learned this morning. We pray that we can put that into practice, God, into our daily life with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.